Welcome to The Word at First Pres, the official podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the fall, we're going to be working through a series called God in Science. Each week, we're going to be exploring the various ways that God has revealed to us through the study and field of science. Friends, let's listen now for the Word of God as it comes to us from Genesis In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and the water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the book of Romans. Uh, As you watch this, it's, uh, this is a complicated what he's talking about. We're going to break it down a little bit later, but listen to what he's saying here, or read along with me. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's referring to Adam here, and death came through sin, And so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. the last of the sermons in our God and Science sermon series. We are also in the last day of Advent. This is the last Sunday in Advent for us. And I think it's important to tell you that on Christmas Eve, on Saturday, uh, we will not be preaching about the idea of God and science. We are going to be looking at Jesus' story through the lens of Luke's gospel. So this is the last one in the series. Well, of course, come back to science. I always talk about it now and again. But this is the last one. It's the culmination of this series. And today we're going to be talking about something that, in my opinion, is actually the most important topic that we have discussed in all of the God and Science series. And the reason why it's the most important is because this particular topic is what we're going to allow for our church to actually make it into the 21st century. The question that we're going to be examining today, if this question is not answered, in my opinion, the church will not survive. 
we will not make it. And this question is something that I have rarely ever seen anybody ask, and even more than that, when the question is asked, it is rarely answered. The question goes something like this. How does the last 150 years of scientific discovery change and impact the way that we think about Jesus? The traditional answer to that question is that it doesn't. Essentially, you have science, you have Jesus, those two things are separate, and essentially they remain unchanged. Jesus is who Jesus is, science is who science is, right? And those two things are separate. I disagree adamantly. I think the last 150 years of scientific, scientific discovery have totally impacted the way that many people think about religion, and particularly the way that they would think about Jesus. And today we're going to pick this apart because until we can answer this question, I don't think the church has an avenue to make it into the 21st century. So to begin, we need to go back to where scientific discovery started to take off 150 years ago. And of course, that is the 1859 publication of Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species. Now this book was revolutionary because for the first time ever, somebody came out and said that species didn't just magically appear here on the planet. He made an argument that said that species evolved over generations and through adapting to their environment, the species were able to change and shift. And he referred to this way of being not as survival of the fittest, but do you remember? It's natural selection, it's up there on the screen. So he used natural selection as the way to talk about the fact that they would naturally select via the fact that they could not survive out in their environments. Now within this book, the first thing that you need to know is he did not talk about human evolution. It wasn't part of what he discussed at all. It was only after people read his book that they started saying, well, if all these other species evolved, right, then we evolved too, and we must have come from lower primates, like monkeys and chimpanzees. The church was very quick to pick up on the discrepancy between Darwin's theory and Genesis chapter 2, what we read early on, which is that humans were formed from what? Dust of the earth. The clay of the earth. So, many clergy, when they first heard this theory, they actually liked it. Some of them sat down and said, particularly in denominations like ours, they said, well, this is great because it revealed the way that God created us, how we got here. But then there were other Christians who felt that Darwin's theory was an affront to the sanctity of the Bible. What most people don't realize, if you go back and look through the literature, there wasn't very many people back in the day who, who disagreed with the theory itself. They thought that it was sound. The idea that species evolved, everybody was good with that. It was the issue of the amount of time that was required for a species to evolve, which is where the problem came into play. Because according to the Bible, the earth is like 5,500 to 6,000 years old. And based on what Darwin was saying, it's going to take a lot more time for a species to evolve than what the Bible has given us. So what happened was, they start looking, geologists and people who were kind of digging up all these rocks, they started getting fossils in the 1800s. Now the fossil record at that time, it wasn't very deep, and the truth is they didn't really know what to make of it. So 
most scientists, after comparing Darwin's theory with the fossil record, they said that the Earth was somewhere between 20,000 years old and several million years old, which we know today is far too short, but at the time, 20,000 years is a lot more than 6,000, right? So for the first time, what you have is a scientific theory that contradicts the biblical timeline. And so what happened was, they looked at Genesis chapter 1, and they said, well, this knocks the legs out from under that. And if you can't trust Genesis chapter 1, then what are you going to do with the rest of the Bible, right? What does that say about the validity of the rest of the Bible if you can't even look at Genesis chapter 1 and agree with what that's talking about? So as you can imagine, the church went into what? A tailspin, right? And... At first, like I said, they were cool with the theory. Everybody was like, oh, it's a fine theory. We just have to deal with the timing issue on it. But 30 years after that, they realized, you know what? We can't even agree with the theory anymore. We have to just say it's wrong. So what they did was, the clergy came out. Many of them said, if you believe in this theory, we're going to deem you a heretic. Of course, this fear tactic had ramifications. Because it forced people to choose sides. You either believe in the Bible word for word, or you believe in science. There's no middle ground between these two things. And at first, the church was winning, because the church was part of the culture. And so if you're going to have to choose one over the other, what are you going to choose? The church. But in 2017, where we are today, what are people choosing? Is it the church? No. They're choosing science over the church. Now, you can be a church like ours who does series like these where we sit there and we say, hey, guess what? You know, the Bible and science, they can go together. It's a great thing. Did you ever hear that before? And, of course, people out there, right, if that was enough, I could just advertise this series and we'd be packed. We'd have hundreds of people in here, right, if that's all you needed to do. But that's not enough. Just sitting there saying that we as Christians acknowledge the validity of science is not going to make that much of a difference. Because people have made a choice. They have turned their back on the church, and they have said, science is my way of being. And most of these people, by the way, if you look at the Pew Research statistics, they believe in God. It's not like they don't believe in God. They just don't want the religion, the baggage that comes along with it. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with religion, particularly in the Bible. And it's baggage that we as Christians don't exactly see because we're in the middle of it. We deal with it all the time. Let me give you an example of some of the baggage that comes along with being a Christian. So, when you start to get into the Bible, what you come to realize very, very quickly is that the Bible is interconnected. You can't read about Jesus' story in the New Testament and divorce that from the history of the Jews in the Old Testament. People have tried. You can't do it. Because when you start reading about Jesus, you realize there's all these references backwards to Joseph, David, Moses, Jonah, just to name a few, right? Now, you can get by without knowing those references, but the deeper you get into it, the more those connections matter. So I want you to imagine something for a moment. Imagine with me. You're a person who's on the periphery of Christianity. You believe mostly in science. You put your faith mostly in science. And you decide one day, you know what? Maybe... I'm missing out on something. So let me see what I can do. I'm going to go to First Pres. They have a service at 9.30. I'm going to see what this whole thing is about. Maybe I'm missing something. So they come in, and they sit down, and they see the Bible up on the screen, and they start reading it. Immediately, 
immediately they are going to feel some tension with this. Let's use the scripture we read this morning from the book of Romans. So, in essence, what you're reading, even though it was really hard to understand, this is the argument that Paul is making. Paul is saying that Jesus is the new Adam. Let me expand this argument for you so you all understand exactly what he's talking about. So, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what happens? According to Genesis chapter 2, what we read, God creates Adam out of what? The dust of the earth, right? Creates, plops him in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam makes a mistake. He sins by eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The consequence of that sin is that death comes into the world. So from the perspective of the Bible, prior to eating that fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, people didn't die. We essentially, we live forever, according to the Bible. But once he ate the fruit from the tree, there were now lifespan limitations placed on humans, and we died. You follow me so far? That's part one. Part two of the argument is this, that God sent Jesus to be the new Adam. He's like the upgraded version. He's like Adam 2.0 so we could have a do-over. It's like going from an iPhone 6 to an iPhone 7. He's the latest and greatest version of human being. So he comes around, and the difference between Adam 1.0, the guy in the Garden of Eden, and Adam 2.0, Jesus, is that Jesus isn't going to make any mistakes. He's going to live a perfect life. And what that does for us is it allows us to overcome death and live forever. So here's the argument, right? Let's just make sure. Adam 1.0, he brings death into the world. Adam 2.0, Jesus, he comes along and allows us to overcome death and live forever. You got the argument so far? All right. Okay, so let's go back. You're that person in the pew. You come here for the first time. You want to check things out. Remember, you believe in science. You believe in God. You want to see what it's all about. So you come into this place, and you hear me, the pastor, just give you that argument about Adam and Jesus. Immediately, you're going to have some problems, right? The first problem that you're going to have is, even if you believe Jesus was a historical figure, you're not going to believe in Adam. Because if you believe in science, you believe in evolution. And that means we started as a bacteria billions of years ago, and we evolved to where we are today. You are not just going to blindly accept that God made this guy, right, from the dust of the earth, and boop, he's there, right? You're not going to take that. Like, that's a problem for you. Second issue with this story is that it says that the reason why we die is because Adam ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But you know that people have been dying for a long time. In fact, death has been part of the universe for billions of years, beginning with the stars. They create, and then they die. They fold away. Long before the earth or humans were ever created. So don't sit there and tell me that the reason why people die is because some dude ate a piece of fruit from a tree. Okay? Not going to work for me. The third issue that you're going to run into is the fact that if you're going to buy into the Adam story, the Adam story is connected with the creation story. And the creation story says that the earth is 6,000 years old. So if what Paul is saying is accurate and correct, that Jesus is the new Adam, then you sitting there in the pew, you're like, you know what? I guess I'm just going to have to do without Jesus. Because the baggage of Adam, all that stuff, you don't want to have to deal with it. It's not worth your time. So, 
What I do is I come up here and I say to you guys until I'm blue in the face, I say, the Adam and Eve story is not literally true, right? I say it all the time. Probably said it two dozen times since I got here three years ago. But you know what? Simply saying that is not enough. Because the story of Jesus and the story of Adam, they are connected together. It's actually important to the foundation of Christianity. And if I sit there and I just say, you know what, the whole thing's a metaphor, you don't need to worry about it, it kicks the legs out from underneath a lot of the foundation that forms the Christian faith. So we have a little bit of a problem, don't we? I want to spend the rest of my time this morning telling you why I do believe that Jesus is Adam 2.0 and why I think that Paul's fundamental premise that we read in the scripture this morning is sound. So the first thing I need to tell you is that I believe that Adam was a real person. It's important for you to know. I do believe that Adam was a real person. Now, I don't believe that he was real in the sense that he was formed from the dust of the earth and he was just there. I believe in evolution. I do believe that we started as a bacteria. And it took billions of years for us to get where we are today. But that being said, I think Adam is the first person to ever achieve what I refer to as God consciousness. Now, let me define that for you. God consciousness is the ability for a human being to recognize that God exists. So Adam is the first person to sit there and say, hey, maybe there is something beyond me that is responsible for the creation of the universe. Now, I don't know who this guy is or who this woman is. It could be a man. It could be a woman. And I don't know how long ago it happened. Tens of thousands of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Who knows? But this person, whoever it was, they sat there and they realized that this is a possibility, that it's not just us, that there's something beyond us. And this idea, it got implanted in human beings from that point forward. It was passed on, like a gene that gets inserted in your DNA. It goes from one generation to the next. And I'm very comfortable calling that person Adam or Eve, because the story of Adam and Eve, what's it about? It's about the first relationship that a human being has with God. Make sense where I'm going? Okay, follow me. I know that I'm, I know that it's tough. Keep going, okay. So the second issue with the Adam and Eve story, or the second interesting part of it, is that it talks about how Adam sinned, right? Or that he made a mistake. And I do believe that Adam was flawed. I don't believe that his flaw, like Christians will sit there and say, well, he screwed up and that's why everybody's doomed, right? I don't believe that. What I think is that he was flawed in the sense that he understood that God existed, but what that meant, he had a very crude and rudimentary understanding of God. He couldn't quite formulate, what does this really mean? Couldn't quite understand it. But with each successive generation after him, he was able, or we were able, to have a closer connection to God, to formulate more clearly who God was. And you can see this in our language. Can we not talk about God? in much more nuanced ways than we have in the past? I mean, if you look in the past, did you understand what Paul was talking about right there when you read that? Was that easy to understand? No, it wasn't. Is it a lot easier to understand what I'm saying? Yes, it is, right? And by the way, they were just as confused as you were when they read it. So don't think that it was like, oh, I just didn't understand what they were saying. We are much better than we were. And what's interesting 
is that what you see is along the way, if we start with Adam, right, and we start moving forward, along the way there are these people who seem to have a closer connection to God. In the Bible, they're called prophets. So it's like Elijah, Isaiah, Deborah, Miriam. These people who seem to have a more acute God consciousness than the average person. They're like little spikes. We're all kind of like the same, but they're these spikes along the way. And what's interesting is we have some of their writings in the Bible. And if you study their writings, what you can see is that you can glean these little details about who God is. You can get a more clear picture of it. So you follow me so far. You with me. I need you to stay with me because this is important. You got Adam, right? He starts it off. You go forward and we get a little closer all the way. We get these little spikes. And then 2,000 years ago, this guy, Jesus, comes along. Jesus, he seems to be like the prophets of old, but even better. You see, Jesus, he has a God consciousness that is so in tune with God that when he speaks, it seems as though God's words are coming out of his mouth. What he says and what he does, it's almost like it's a true reflection of God's being and character. It's almost as if Jesus has perfect God consciousness. So what Jesus says and what he does when he speaks and says, it's almost like Jesus and God, they are one and the same. There's no difference between these two. And so, if Adam 1.0 started the whole thing off recognizing that God exists, and then we fast forward tens of thousands of years to Jesus, Adam 2.0, he really is the full culmination of what this person started tens of thousands of years ago. Does that make sense? Because that's the way you combine evolution and Jesus together. Now, you might be sitting there saying to yourself, Well, it's nice that you made all this stuff up, Alex. (laughs) But why should I trust you? Like, honestly, you could have just been making it up, and that's wonderful. But I didn't just make it up all by myself. I actually adapted this stance from an early theologian. He lived 150 years after Jesus. His name was Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon. And he put these ideas out there for the first time. And what's really neat about this guy is that he's actually called, he's called the father of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right thinking. So why you would care about him or why you would know him is if you open one of those Bibles in your pew, the New Testament in there, he's the first person to start to form that New Testament. He was the first person to argue for which book should be kept in and kept out. But beyond the Bible, what this guy did was he made a really fascinating argument about Jesus. And I've always loved what he had to say. So he really bought into Paul's argument that Jesus is Adam 2.0. But he also said that Jesus represents a state of connection to God that was possible for us to achieve. He believed, Irenaeus believed, that if you follow Jesus, that you can become like Jesus. Now I know that that is very different from what you have probably heard from pastors standing here throughout the entire history of this church. (laughs) Because normally, what pastors will sit there and say is that we are far too sinful to ever be like Jesus. But if Irenaeus is correct, then Jesus represents a state of God consciousness that is possible for us to achieve. And Irenaeus is not the only one, by the way. There are whole Christian traditions built around this. The Eastern Orthodox Church, which is huge, believes in this. 
And the Protestant denominations like ours, the Church of the Nazarene, they believe this to be true. The Desert Fathers, they believe that you could achieve a state of God consciousness that was close or equal to what Jesus had. These are known as holiness traditions. And in these holiness traditions, what they purport is that humans are not these horrific individuals that are capable of only minimal acts of goodness. On the contrary, they believe quite strongly that humans possess the capacity to be like Jesus. Now the reason why I love these traditions so much is because it answers the fundamental question of how do you have Jesus combined with a world where we evolved from a bacteria. Because the whole premise of evolution, the crux of it, is that we are always changing. We are never the same. But in the Bible, what does it say? The Bible says that you and I, we are no different from Adam 1.0. We are static. We never change. How Adam was in the Garden of Eden, that's how you and I are. We can never be different. Now, based on this way of thinking, essentially, you and I, we can never live up to Jesus' expectations. And I have to say that I think this defeats the whole purpose of being Christian. If we can't actually do what Jesus did, then what's the point of even trying? Like, why even work towards doing that? You have no incentive to do so because you're going to fail no matter what. But if Irenaeus is correct, then we can evolve to be different. We can change. We have the potential to be like Jesus. This is what he argued. He said, if you follow Jesus, it turns you away from evil towards good. And the more you follow in Jesus' way, the more you improve your God consciousness, the more you become like Adam 2.0. So from this point of view, you could be Adam 1.1, 1.3, 1.5. You could be like Mother Teresa and be like Adam 1.8 or 1.9. You're getting close to Adam 2.0. Why does this make a difference? It makes all the difference in the world. Because it changes the reason why you are here. If you can change and be like Jesus, it makes all the difference. Because the old way of thinking means that we cannot build God's kingdom here on earth. I tell you that all the time that we can. If you're locked into that old way of thinking, there's no point in us even trying because we can't do anything. We can't even make a dent because if you are incapable of making any kind of positive choice and improving the world, then why even try? But if Irenaeus is correct, then we can build God's kingdom. We can make a difference. And actually, what you are doing here in this church, it will make a positive change in the world. When I say our love can be the light that changes the world, that's not just some empty phrase that we say at the end of the service every week. It can actually happen here. And so, on Saturday, what's Saturday again? I forgot. Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve. When you come here, what I want you to realize is that you are coming here to celebrate the birth of our Lord, the birth of the Son of God, but also the birth of the first man to achieve perfect God consciousness. And that gift that he was given, it's not just for him, it's also for us. And that is so important, because if that gift is also for us, what that means is we can change, we can be different, we can be God's hands in the world, and we can build God's kingdom here on earth. And that is why I am here. And I hope that that's why you are here too. I look forward to seeing you all on Saturday evening. 
Thank you for listening to me. I know that what I said, that was a lot to take in, but it's so important to me because I think that's what the future of the church is all about. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.